are Locked On Cougars. This is your daily podcast focused on the BYU Cougars. Thanks for joining us on a Tuesday edition of the show. Our look back at 1984, a special week-long edition of the podcast, continues today with a conversation with team defensive captain Jim Herman, a guy who was very willing to talk about the good old days, but also has some great thoughts on what 1984 meant to the BYU football program and to him personally. We'll get to that conversation. It is also a hashtag Twitter Tuesday where we're fielding your questions and answering those as well. We are proud to be part of the Locked On Podcast Network where, of course, the motto is your team every day. And in this case, that means the BYU Cougars. And with that rundown out of the way, let's get it started here. This is the Locked On Cougars podcast for April 14th. 2020. What's up, guys? I'm Jay Catch, your host here on Locked On Cougars, your resident BYU insider. I work for the Zone Sports Network in Salt Lake City, Utah. And thanks again for taking the time to download your daily podcast, Focus on the BYU Cougars, with us here. If you're just uh, finding this podcast, you're new to the community here on Locked On Cougars, first off, welcome. We aim to be your one-stop shop for all of the BYU sports news that you need to know about each and every day, as well as insider information that you will not find anywhere else. And thanks again for taking the time to download the podcast. Make sure to hit that follow button if you're listening to us on Spotify or the subscribe button if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. That way you never miss an episode of the show because we are with you guys daily talking BYU sports. As I mentioned in the open, it is a hashtag Twitter Tuesday answering your guys' questions that you've sent in on Twitter. You can follow the show on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LockedOnCougars. My personal Twitter feed is at Jacob C. Hatch, and you also can Drop the show a note anytime you want via email. LockedOnBYU at gmail.com is the address for our email. All right, starting off today, a tricky T on Twitter at Plumber underscore Tanner, Tanner Plumber, sent in, sent in a, a note saying, is a New Year's Six Bowl possible for BYU? And Tanner, uh, my answer here is kind of dependent on if you think a New Year's Six Bowl is ever possible for BYU at any point in the future or if it's a possible this year. In both cases, in theory, yes, it is possible. Uh, is it plausible, though? Not planning on that. Uh, and let me explain. I look at BYU football and the current iteration of how college football is set up. They're thought of as a good program, but not an elite program. They're good enough to have scheduling agreements with teams in all the major Power 5 conferences as well as a vast majority of the G5 conferences, but there's also also a concern that BYU is not quote-unquote Power 5 caliber, if that makes sense. So if BYU, let's say this year, they were to go out and just shock the entire world, go 12-0 if the college football season starts on time, uh, they're 12-0 come the end of November, or maybe we're into December for the season's delayed a little bit. If they're 12-0 come November with, uh, with the schedule that BYU has, 
they'd be in the conversation. There's no doubt. They'd probably be a top 10 program and absolutely be in the conversation for a, for a, a New Year's Six bowl possibility. But you have to run the table. BYU, if they ever want to make the New Year's Six or heaven forbid the college football playoff, they have to schedule an absolutely monster schedule, have a schedule like this year where you have six Power Five teams and hope that four or five of those Power Five teams are top 25 caliber. You happen to beat them all. You beat everybody else on your schedule. You're 12 or 13 and 0 in a season, and you just absolutely have left no doubt that you are one of the top six or top four teams in the entire country. So to answer your question, Tanner, is a New Year's Six Bowl a possibility for BYU? Sure. Am I planning on it this year or in the near term? Not necessarily, because like I said, BYU had to put together one of those magical seasons where they go undefeated, and that just looks like it's going to be a, a a, a tough sell, a tough, a tough road to hoe, if if you will, for BYU to accomplish that. But I, it'd be cool to see. There's no doubt about that. Having an undefeated season with BYU football, there's nothing like it. So uh, we will hope and pray, but I'm not necessarily anticipating that. All right, other question that came in today comes in from BYU Fifth Quarter. They're part of the Fifth Quarter Network. I believe Jameson Coons, he's the one that runs that site. They sent in this question. Do you expect Chase Roberts and or Jacob Conover to be home from their missions by fall camp, and do you think that either will contribute in 2020? Well, to answer your question, Fifth Quarter, uh, I think this is Jameson that asked the question, but I I would expect that both of them are already home uh, because the current situation with most of the missions internationally for missionaries who are from the United States who have served international missions, which both, I think, Chase Roberts as well as uh, Jacob Conover. I believe Conover went to South America while Chase Roberts went to Canada. Most of them have returned home on a temporary basis. I would expect that maybe one of these guys uh, goes back out on their mission at least, and I think BYU would encourage them to do so to help balance the roster situation. But could you, in theory, see Chase Roberts and Jacob Conover saying, hey, I did my time. It was an act of God here that has forced me home from my mission. Now I want to get on with my football career. That also wouldn't surprise me. And BYU, with their current situation they're looking at, where they're going to be over scholarships, speaking of the 85 scholarship limit the NCAA has implemented, well, BYU absolutely would find a way to have both Chase Roberts and Jacob Conover on the roster if they want to be there in 2020. They're not going to say, well, sorry, we have X number of players and you don't fit in this year's class. That's not going to happen. Jacob Conover is a legit four-star prospect at quarterback. Chase Roberts, I thought was a four-star wide receiver, listed as a three-star according to most of the recruiting services. Both of them are talented, talented prospects. But in terms of contributing on the field this year, well, if Chase Roberts were to get home and decide he wanted to start his career right now, he'd absolutely be in the mix. Uh, He would be a guy that would be in the mix to replace the three outgoing seniors that BYU lost this past offseason. Whereas Jacob Conover, with three proven quarterbacks on the roster already, along with a couple others. I think that Conover would face long odds to get on the field this year, but you never know. Uh, We saw injuries derail the 2017 season, and BYU played four or five different quarterbacks that year. And that, in theory, is how you'd see Jacob Conover on the field in 2020 if he's on the roster. So hopefully those answer your questions, uh, Jameson slash BYU fifth quarter. But I would expect that uh, if they decide, if either one of those two players decide they want to play football this fall, BYU will make room on the roster. They will tell a man or a young man that the 
scholarship that you have is going away. You can either walk on or you can transfer because we're giving it to this player. And that's just the cold, hard truth of how college football works. It's a, it's a business. It's, there's no doubt about that. So there you go. Thanks again for sending in your questions. Love interacting with you guys every Tuesday. Hashtag Twitter Tuesday. It's a mailbag segment. I just have to come in on Twitter, but if you have stuff on Facebook or if you want to email us, feel free to weigh in. All right, coming up here in just a second, going to talk with Jim Herman, a team captain from the 1984 National Championship team, as our retrospective of 1984, looking back on the greatest season in BYU football history. We'll get to it and talk with Jim about that. Before we do that, though, listening to this podcast is really easy to do. And what when I say that, I literally mean you don't have to even lift so much as a finger to catch up on everything going on with BYU sports and this podcast. All you've got to do is tell your smart devices, whether you got a smart speaker at your home or smart speakers in your office, etc., or you use your smartphone, tell them, play the latest episode of the Locked On Cougars podcast, and we will be right there with you guys, keeping you updated each and every day. Really simple way to catch up on all the BYU sports news each day with this podcast. And reminder for you, tell your smart devices, play the latest episode of the Locked On Cougars podcast, and we will endeavor to make you the smartest BYU fan in the room. All right, guys, had a chance to speak with Jim Herman, a team captain on the 1984 National Championship team, still who lives here locally, coaching in the high school ranks, a guy from Wisconsin who was not a member of the LDS faith before he came to BYU. Very unique story in terms of how he ended up in Provo, his contributions to the 1984 National Championship team. So let's get to it. Uh, Day number two of our retrospective, looking back at 1984, the most important season in BYU football history. Here you go, Jim Herman with myself, right here on Locked on Cougars. Pleased to welcome in now Jim Herman, a member of the 1984 National Championship team. Uh, Jim, obviously a guy who's still here around Utah, working, etc. Jim, thanks for taking the time. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Let's start here. Of course, 1984 uh, conjures up all kinds of memories for BYU fans. For you as a guy who was a member of that team, what does it conjure up for you when you think about it? Oh man, that's just such a. I'm, I can talk more than I should sometimes, so that's a really open-ended question, and uh, I could take an hour to answer it. But it conjures up a lot. I mean, different things. Obviously, from a football standpoint, um, I you know I, I don't know if we really realized at the time how hard uh, it was to accomplish what we accomplished, or maybe hard's not the right word, but how next to impossible it maybe would be to replicate um, because of just the dynamics of college football and the landscape and how things were going to change over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Um, you, BYU was coming off a string of really good seasons. Arguably, the 83 season, some people could argue that, uh, at least I, I think it's one of the best teams in BYU history. We had couple NFL Hall of Famers, couple college football Hall of Famers on that team. Um, we were 12-1. and one. We lost to Baylor the first game of the year down in Baylor in a, in a shootout by a point, point or two. Um, and, uh, you know, we could have run the table that year, too, and had done some really good things. But that took us momentum-wise into 84. Um, I actually don't think we were preseason ranked in the top 20 or top 25 in many polls because we lost Steve Young and Gordon Hudson and Todd Shell and kind of a bevy of really good players that, that had moved on to the NFL. And I think people thought it was going to be a, a little while before we, you know, we kind of got the program back on track with a new quarterback, et cetera, et cetera. But 
we really didn't skip a beat. We started out with Pittsburgh, and who was preseason ranked really high and had a slew of, uh, you know, their own NFL players that were going to go on and do great things, Outland Trophy winners and all-pro players, all sorts of things, and, and that kind of launched us. But more so than that, on a personal level, um, it was just one of the greatest years of my life. Just I had the best time at school. We were winning. Football was a huge part of my life. I enjoyed um, everything about my experience at BYU, both football and non-football related. So conjures up a lot. But a, uh, from a personal standpoint, just one of the best times, best times of my life. Actually, it was a it was a great time. Yeah, I've talked to people who say that 1983 team may have been, yeah, maybe on in terms of sheer overall talent, et cetera, maybe a better team. But 84, obviously, that team now has the hardware, has that national championship trophy. At what point during the 1984 season did you feel like, hey, this is a team that might be able to do something special? You know, I know it's, gosh, we, we actually thought before the season started, um, I was a captain of that team and, and proud of that and, and, and the captains that I served with were Craig Garrick and Kyle Morrell and Glenn Kozlowski. And very strangely, usually captains are elected in the fall, but for whatever reason that year, um, Coach Edwards, we picked captains at the end of spring ball. Um, and, and I was elected captain. And so over the summer, we would talk. Us, the four captains would get together. And then when we came back, we had a couple of meetings as captains and talked about, you know, what are we going to do to kind of help chart, you know, the season and, and get things on track as to what we want to accomplish. And, oh, by the way, what do we want to accomplish and what do we think we can accomplish? And, and quietly we all said, you know what? Man, we got – this could be huge for us. We start off with Pitt and we play Baylor and we've got some good, you know, non-conference games and – I think we're better than a lot of people think we are. I think we think we've got more talent coming back than a lot of people give us credit for. And we, I, we, I think we really honestly thought we could run the table. And we didn't necessarily, I think, realize that that could result in a national championship. But we thought we, I, I really felt strongly, I think, if you ask everyone kind of across the board, we felt that an undefeated season was probably going to happen, or at least we felt like it was doable. Um, if we did everything we needed to do. So it was, yeah, it was kind of, that was kind of the mindset from the get-go. And then when we beat Pitt and we got a nice big bump in the, in the college football rankings, it was like, okay, yeah, this is great, kind of what we thought was going to happen. And um, it was obviously a close game, hard fought, but um, we got through that and that was on to kind of do what we needed to do to finish out and, and run the table. At least that's how I recall it. You mentioned the fact that Kyle Morrell was a fellow captain of yours on the defensive side of the football. I wanted to take you to that Hawaii game, that famous play where he dives over the line, grabs Raphael Cherry by the shoulders, and just drags him down on the goal line. Were you on the field on that play, or were you off the field watching it? Yep, no, I was on the field. Yeah, I was defensive end. So I actually, yeah, I love watching that replay because I can see, you know, uh, you know, obviously watch Kyle, but you also kind of care about what you were doing on that play. And, I can see myself, my head, you know, my helmet kind of shoot, dart through the line, had just an inside pinch call, shot the gap. So I'm kind of going low, trying to grab his ankles and take him down. And um, I'll be honest with you, at the time, I don't think any of us really kn- knew what happened. Like, it was just a big stop. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, we flew home, and then the next day, 
uh, you know, obviously we saw film, and then uh, I think even before we saw the film, there was just replays of it on the TV, and and so we we're like, wow, that's a heck of a play. <laughs> that's a heck of a play. And, and in a weird way, I think that play and really that game, in a lot of ways, reflected who our team was. I, I think we had double the yardage that Hawaii had. I, mm-hmm. I want to say we had four or five or six turnovers. Like it was ridiculous. We had a couple block punts. We had a couple interceptions, but we always kind of felt like we were in control and we're going to win, even though we made it super hard on ourselves. And, and it, it came down to, uh, you know, a fairly dramatic play. Really. I mean, I think there was some more time left in the game, but that obviously was instrumental in really, you know, preventing them from scoring and um, from the one yard line and, and, you know, we got the ball back and away we went. We, we ran out the clock and, and won that game. But there were a couple games like that during that season. And I think any national championship team of, uh, you know, any season you look up any national championship team, there are there is at least one, if not more than one game or games like that, that that national champion needs to win, whether it be against a high-ranking team or a conference team that they beat regularly for the last five, six years. To go undefeated, you generally need one or two close wins just because the way football's set up and and other teams are preparing and competing and spending time, effort, money recruiting and and lots of time on the practice field to beat you. So, yeah, but that, that, that game was kind of the epitome of the 1984 National Championship team in more than one way, at least um, not from just an individual standpoint, but from a team standpoint. I spoke with Robbie Bosco as part of this series we're doing here on the podcast, and he mentioned the fact that he felt felt like the defense in 1984 doesn't get its due or it, the fair share of the credit for what that team did. And he said that you guys on the defensive side of the ball kept that team in so many games. He mentioned the fact that you guys overcame deficits in multiple games, due in part to the defense doing what they had to do. You mentioned just barely there were multiple games in this season where you look back on it and say, yeah, we, we did some things to get back into this how uh how uh important was it for you as a defensive unit you had guys like leon white on that team kyle morrell yourself who all went on to fairly decent pro careers how important were all those guys working in concert with each other yeah it was big i mean i i I actually if you look at our the bowl game same thing i I ended up, when I was at the Bengals, Mike Hammerstein, who was a defensive lineman, and then on that team, and then actually when I was at the Cowboys, my first year out of the league, I got, or first year out of college, I got drafted by the Cowboys. Kevin Brooks was a defensive lineman on that Michigan team, and then my next year when I was at Cincinnati, Mike Hammerstein was a defensive lineman on that team. And so, and then actually Eric Caddis, who was my roommate at Cincinnati, was a tight end at Michigan. Um, that played on that, played in that game. So had, it was kind of great to see guys you know, over the next two, three, four years that we had played against, especially in that Michigan game. But statistically, again, I think if you break down statistically the Michigan-BYU game, we had close to 600 yards of offense. They had around 200 yards. We had six turnovers. Um, And, you know, it's – I don't know what the stat is, but if you have one turnover, I think your chances of winning the game drop radically by 25 to 30 percent and for every turnover after that it it drops down significantly so with six turnovers for us to win that game obviously the defense played really really well um and and i 
I'm, you know, as a defensive member, defensive captain of that team, super proud of what we accomplished. We had some studs on that team. I think we played really well team defense. And then, you know, we had some, as, as usual, you got a couple outstanding individuals that really kind of play to the next level and, and rise above. But yeah, defense was tough that year. And, you know, I know different rankings, you know, for different categories. I know we were ranked fairly high in different different categories. I don't know if they were team defense or scoring defense or all those types of things. But, yeah, really strong defense. And at the time, I mean, still, BYU is known historically and will always, I think its national brand will always be um, an offensive powerhouse. At least that's what I would certainly like to see it get back to. But that's what it was at the time. Um, its offensive prowess is what it was all about, and certainly all its quarterbacks and the passing yards and all those things we put up. So that was our identity, and uh, I think when that's your main identity, that the defense takes the back seat. And uh, at the time, we were fine with it because when you're in the throes of it, you realize football is a team sport, and you're you're doing all you can, and, and you realize that your efforts are being recognized, and, and more than recognized, they're actually germane to winning lots of football games. So... Yeah, it was nice to hear Robbie say that. There you go, Jim Herman, BYU team captain from 1984. We'll have part two of that conversation, talking more about the season and his memories of that great team here in just a second. Before we do that, though, a reminder for you guys to check out the Locked On NFL podcast mock draft special that had started on Friday and is running throughout this entire week. They're taking you through all 32 first-round picks in the NFL, as well as some other ones for teams that don't have first-round picks. Very... Uh, insightful podcast where they're breaking down why these players were picked. It includes voices from both the Locked On NFL channels and the Locked On College Football channels here on the Locked On Podcast Network. A massive undertaking. I was involved in this to a smaller degree but it was a blast to be involved with it. So check it out guys. The Locked On NFL Podcast 2020 mock draft special running all week long on the Locked On NFL podcast. You can download it everywhere podcasts are available, including where you find this podcast each and every day. Let's get to part two with Jim Herman, a team captain from 1984's National Championship team. A tease for you guys coming up later this week. We're also going to be talking with Norm Chow, one of the coaches on that team, as well as Vice Sikahema, a guy who is very opinionated, has some insightful comments about his contributions to this team that may not be as big as others, but still very important nonetheless. So Vice Sikahema coming up later this week, as well as Norm Chow. But now part two of our conversation with Jim Herman, team captain from the 1984 National Championship BYU football program. I wanted to ask you, Jim, about uh, your relationship with Lavelle Edwards. Obviously, he's since passed a legendary coach in his own right. But when you guys won that national title, do you feel like it was almost a culmination of everything he had built to that point at BYU? Yeah, I I, I can't say enough good about Coach Edwards. Um, So, yeah, um, I think Coach Edwards just deserves uh, every accolade possible, and, and I think he probably deserves more than he even got, and he got plenty. But, yeah, he was um, changed the game. He really changed the game of football, and, and at the time he was smart enough to realize that um, it was about the veer or the eye running the ball, whether mm-hmm. it was – the Southwest Conference, or it was the Big Ten, or it was Woody Hayes, or Bo Schembechler, or 
what they were doing down really at SMU and Oklahoma and Nebraska and all those types of places and just realized that that athlete wasn't going to come to BYU. And in order to compete and really elevate the program, he had to do what he needed to do, and that was throw the ball. So um, easier said than done and easy to look back and go, oh, my gosh, that was the, the natural progression of college football, and he was just a cog in the wheel. But it, when you realize, I think Jim McMahon had 77 NCA records as a senior, I think 70, <laughs> 77, 78, which is just mind-blowing. I mean, just to even say that is, is it's truly mind-blowing. You get... I think he was second in the Heisman Trophy. Steve Young was second in the Heisman Trophy. I mean, it's just unbelievable what BYU is doing from an offensive standpoint. Uh, that obviously all germinated from Coach Edwards, who ironically, um, you know, was a defensive coach. He played, I think, he played center. But um, so it was. He was. He just was such a leader and a and an innovator and a guy to really, you know, that really changed the game. And then from a management standpoint and a leadership standpoint, he just was fantastic. And I, from a personal level, feel like I had, you know, the best relationship with Coach Edwards of any player ever. And I think that was the beauty about it is he made everyone feel that way. Um, I'm sure if you ask hundreds of other players, they'll feel the same way I do is that their relationship with Coach Edwards was unique and special and and, you know, he reached out to you and you had this kind of unique bond. But that's what makes a great leader is that he could do that and, and make hundreds of people feel that way. But um, without without question, as a captain of the national championship team, I had tons of unique opportunities to go speak with him during that season. After that season, um, really, for the next 20 years, there were times he would call me up and say, hey, I'm, I'm doing this thing and they're talking about the history of BYU football. Will you come? It's a dinner and I would go or Robbie and I would go or I, I would I would have, you know, myriads of opportunities to interface with them as our as time went on after after we were really, you know, tied at the hip from uh, being in the same program. So can't say enough about Coach Edwards changing my life. He offered me scholarship on my recruiting trip. I came on the first weekend of the year, the Utah BYU game. It was the first time first first weekend where recruits could come he offered me a scholarship the day I was leaving and just recruited me really hard and always wanted to know that he, he wanted me to be a part of the program and and uh, I took a flyer by coming out of here I was a non-member from the Midwest which those those weren't common recruits mm-hmm. um, and and it just changed my life so I love coach Edwards love everything about him and and uh, yeah, I'm so grateful that that was part of his legacy, and he deserves that and everything, and then some. How does BYU find you in Heartland, Wisconsin, of all places? Man, it's a crazy long story, um, but like everything, you know, it's relationships and luck and all those things combined. Coach French was coaching at the University of Minnesota. Uh-huh. The University of Minnesota was recruiting me, who was not very good, quite frankly. My junior, you used to start getting recruited as a junior. He got hired at BYU my senior year. So Coach French knew about me as a junior at the University of Minnesota. He goes to, he goes to BYU my senior year, um, and, and there was that touch point. And then as, a, as about a 10-year-old kid, my grandfather, John Smith, who was born and raised in Utah but um, lived his whole life in the East Coast and the Midwest, he was a 
president of General Electric, the medical and x-ray division, which is in Wisconsin, we took a family trip out west where he grew up. And we drove from Phoenix, where he was living at the time, all the way up to Jackson Hole. And we stopped at the Grand Canyon and Zions and Bryce's. And we stopped in at BYU. And he was an all-American defensive lineman at the University of Pennsylvania. But he knew some of the coach. He knew Coach Tuckett or something. But anyhow, okay. we stopped in for about 15 minutes. And he gave me a tour of, like, the field house. Like, and he, he didn't really know it because he didn't pl- go there or play there. But he just knew BYU. And we stopped at Utah. And and then we went up to Jackson Hole and then drove back down through Yosemite. Anyhow, I got a little card I filled out um, as a recruit at, like, 11 years old, 12 years old. I was going into probably seventh grade. And, uh, I don't know, got into the circular somehow, and I would get a letter periodically, and then Coach French got hired. And he's like, yeah, I think you're, somehow your name's in the system. And then, obviously, I know of you. Would you be interested in coming out here? They're doing great stuff. And I knew nothing about BYU outside of that yeah. five-minute five <laughs> you know, tour. I, I didn't really realize it was even a church school. I, I just thought it was kind of named after, um, you know, Brigham Young, who was local prominence in the geographical region. I didn't understand. I didn't know an LDS person in, in Wisconsin. I, it was unique. So, but, but honestly, it was the best thing I ever did, best decision I ever made. I am so grateful that I, I, I kind of took a flyer and ended up at BYU. Was, I think my four years of playing, we were 44-3 and three, or 44-4, and four, one of the two. Wow. Um, yeah, and so it was prime time. I couldn't have picked it better. My roommate, best friend, Steve Young, Lee Johnson, my vice at Kahima, all those guys are still really good friends of mine. And, and it was just it was just an all-time experience. So super grateful it all worked out. Where were you when you found out you guys were named national champions? Because I remember you guys played in the Holiday Bowl in mid-December, December 16th, but obviously the national championship wasn't awarded until after the new year. So what happened? Where were you at when you found out you guys were named national champs? You know, I was playing in the East-West Shrine game, which um, is still a, it's still a really nice college all-star game. But at the time, it was arguably one of the top one or two college all-star games. Mm-hmm. And Coach Edwards had been elected as a coach. And, and I was playing there. Kyle Morrell was playing. And I think Lewis Wong. I think we were the three representatives that got elected to play. And um, we were practicing. We, I remember we were... You know, and, and it was great because it was the who's who of college football. You know, Doug Flutie was the Heisman Trophy winner was there. Randall Cunningham was there. You know, Jim Lachey, who was the Outland Trophy winner, was there. There were uh, all these, you know, everyone from all around that were, were going on playing the NFL were there that knew of us, knew we were ranked number one. Some of them has played against us. Some of, it had, some of them hadn't. And I remember it was after – I think we had two practices a day at the East West Shrine game, but I, I want to say it was between them. Or okay. Because there's a picture of us. There's a picture of Coach Edwards, myself, Kyle, and Lewis at an East West Shrine practice with, like, our jerseys, and we look all sweaty, so it was either after practice. But the word came down that we were awarded the national champion, and they had a press conference, and all these people showed up, and we walked off the field, and they grabbed us four and said, hey, you know, congratulations, BYU's national champion. So that's, that's how we found out. That's how I found out. 
This is pretty remarkable because I, I, when I talked to Robbie, going back to the conversation I had with Robbie Bosco, he said he was at home sleeping and his dad woke up and said, hey, you're a national champion. Congrats. Yeah. So it's just kind of yeah. kind of funny because in this day and age, obviously, they awarded on the field with the college football playoff. Just a different yeah. era. There's no doubt. Totally. Totally. I mean, there's no question. And, and the Holiday Bowl was played fairly early. So, I mean, you know, I... You know, we went into it ranked number one. Mm-hmm. We didn't lose. It wasn't the best showing. You know, we kind of had those turnovers and made the game closer than it needed to be. But, um, you know, we were undefeated and, um, you know, we were unanimous. So it was great. It was it was awesome. I mean, it was a weird time. Um, but, you know, I, we're really part of college football history, that team. And I, I did a little research. We had a, we had a reunion. Uh, for the 84 team and I just was I just got online and I was I wanted I was to speak at this reunion because I was a captain and and they said hey you know you need to we're going to have one offense one defense guy get up say a little say some words so you need to represent I said okay so I got online did a little research and and it was fascinating to really go back and historically look what that team was kind of responsible for in, in directly and indirectly the BCS Mm-hmm. really came about absolutely 100% tied to that game. The, the BCS was really all about one plays two. It turned into more than that. It turned into the BCS championship and the bowl series and, uh, and a lot of money. But the whole concept behind the BCS was that every year, regardless, no matter what, number one will play number two. And that was because the Orange Bowl tried to buy us out of the Holiday Bowl. The Holiday Bowl wouldn't release us because they had a contractual obligation with the Western Athletic Conference at the time. The Fiesta Bowl tried to buy us out of our contract so we could play either an at-large team or um, I think Oklahoma was tied to the Orange Bowl, so it would have been Washington. Yeah. Because weirdly, Washington didn't go to the Orange Bowl that year for some reason, but they were like number two. I mean, I'm sorry, to the Rose Bowl that year. They were like the number two ranked team and Oklahoma was two or three depending upon the poll. So yeah, the BCS kind of really germinated and, and came out of BYU being awarded the national championship and the frustration of everyone involved of not having the opportunity for either Oklahoma and Washington to somehow play BYU because they were two or three depending on the poll and we were number one. And and so, you know, it's kind of fascinating to go back and read the history of that and just see BYU 1984, BYU 1984 <laughs> kind of tied to all those different discussions and, and really what that was all about because we were, you know, now we were, well, I think we're the only or we're certainly the last non-P5 team or major conference team to win the national championship. So, yeah, it's kind of, it's fascinating in a lot of ways, but it was great to be part of college football history too. Last thing for me here, Jim, is I wanted to ask you, is there any aspect, story, player, coach, anything about the 1984 season that people have overlooked over the years that you maybe want to get out there for people to know about this team? Gosh, man, that's that's a great question. Um, You know, I I don't know. I mean, like I said, a lot of it is just so, um, you know, I I, I coach high school football now, Mm -hmm. and I tell the kids every year when the season starts that, one, the season's going to go really fast. It's going to be hard for you to remember the second quarter of us playing, you know, 
lone peak in a semifinal game. But what you're going to remember is, you know, the journey. And it sounds, you know, trite or um, it, it, it sounds like, you know, too much of kind of a canned way to answer the question. But that's really what it's all about. And so, I mean, what I just remember is the journey. I just remember coming back. I remember that year when we came came back to BYU and the season started and what it felt like in the summer and then what training camp was all about. And I remember going to Pittsburgh. I remember being in in Baylor when or when Baylor came to us because we played Baylor the year before and lost. And, and I remember all the players. I remember the Addicts brothers. And I remember Grant Taft as the coach. And I remember people I interfaced with and, and, you know, faculty at BYU and the people that worked our training table and all those things. That's, there's just so much to it. Um, and that's to me, what makes college sports so great. It's not about how many points you scored. I mean, that that's obviously part of people's individual legacies, but really what it is and what really makes me sad about what's going on right now with the coronavirus is people are being robbed of kind of the culmination of, or not only just the culmination for the NCAA tournament, but actually the pretty much the entire experience for spring sports people. That whether it be volleyball or track or golf or whatever, they're they're missing out a huge chapter of their life that they they didn't really get a chance to live out. So I know that's not a very precise answer. Uh, there's just so many great memories of of that year and what it did to my life and still does to my life. I mean, there's there's probably not a... I used to say a week, and it's really probably true, but there's not a month that goes by where I don't bump into someone or an, an old fan or, or someone I went to school with or someone that was in high school when I was in college or especially now that I'm coaching football, I see all sorts of different touch points where people say, oh, I remember watching you you know, in the 84 game or the, when we were watching that on TV or we used to come to watch all your games. or So, yeah, it's just a huge part of my life, and I, I couldn't narrow it down to one thing. It was just, it was a great, in my opinion, it was a great time for BYU. It was a great time for the state of Utah. It was a great time for me personally, and it was a great time for BYU football. So oh, I, I get 100 stories for each one of those categories <laughs> that were all really, really good. I believe it. Well, Jim, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hopefully we can do it again soon, okay? I hope so. I appreciate you thinking of me, and I I always love to talk about the old days, so thanks for calling, or thanks for checking in. There you go, Jim Herman, BYU team captain from the 1984 National Championship team. It's a blast to catch up with these legends of BYU football. Obviously, winning a national title, having that national title ring on your finger means so much. And you can tell that Jim Herman just loves talking about his time at BYU. It really set him up for the rest of his life. He now works with guys like Steve Young in his day-to-day life and just absolutely has a phenomenal life and he says a lot of it started when he went to BYU as you heard him talk about there cool story to hear him talk about how he got to BYU and uh, the coaches at BYU getting to know him and he didn't even know BYU was a church school he'd come out to Utah apparently with his with his grandfather just a fascinating backstory that I had never heard before and a big thank you to Jim Herman for taking the time to join us here on the podcast please reach out to him on social media let him know thank you 
you for joining us. We had Robbie Bosco on yesterday's podcast. Of course, the starting quarterback on that 1984 National Championship team. You can go back and listen to that if you missed it on yesterday's podcast. And like I said, uh, before we got to that second part, guys like Norm Chow and Vaisika Hemel will also be coming up on this week's podcast to talk about this 1984 National Championship team. Big thank you to all people involved with this podcast, especially you, the listeners. Big thank you to Jim Herman for joining us here on the podcast. It is a blast to be with you guys each and every day. So make sure you hit that follow button on Spotify, the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, or essentially everywhere you or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow along so you never miss an episode of this podcast each and every day. Enjoy whatever's left of your Tuesday, and we'll be back with you guys soon. This has been the Locked On Cougars podcast for April 14th, 2020. We will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.